We turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 13, question and answer 34. Wherefore callest thou him our Lord? Because he hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. Beloved, with Lord's Day 13, question and answer 34, we reach the end of the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the names of the Mediator, which are set forth in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. We've seen that he is called Jesus, which is Savior, We've seen that he is called Christ, the Anointed One. In connection with that, we've also seen that we are called Christians because we share in his anointing. We've seen that he is the only begotten Son of God, that is to say, the eternal and natural Son of God. And so the final title, or the final part of the name of our Mediator, is Lord, our Lord. Notice then the Son of God, our Lord. The Son of God, our Lord. Notice first how he is Lord, second what this means, and third what this requires. Our confession both in the Apostles' Creed and in the Heidelberg Catechism is Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. He is Lord. We do not make him Lord. There's a common misconception among evangelical Christians that we make Jesus Lord. We do not make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord, whether we confess him or not. And so, we do not say, as many do, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, as if Jesus is waiting to be accepted. And then when he is accepted, and only when he is accepted, does he become Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord and he is the Savior of his people. In fact, if you understand what the, what the meaning of Lord is, what the concept of a Lord is, it is actually absurd to say, I accept Jesus as my Lord. A servant does not accept someone to be his master a master is the Lord of his servant. Because Lord means master, as we shall see. And the relationship between us and Lord is between a master and his servant or his slave, 
as we shall see. And there is no accepting him then as Lord. He is Lord. He, in question 34, wherefore callest thou him our Lord, he is a reference to the Son of God. And the Son of God is Lord in two ways or in two senses. First, the Son of God is Lord by virtue of his divinity. The title or the name of Jesus in the New Testament is Lord, and that is the Greek word kurios. And kurios is the New Testament name for God. In the Old Testament, the name of God was Yahweh or Jehovah. It consisted of four Hebrew letters called the Tetragrammaton. And the word Tetragrammaton means four letters. Yahweh or Jehovah. In the KJV, the name Yahweh or Jehovah is almost always rendered the Lord, all capital letters. But when the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, and they rendered the name Yahweh or Jehovah into Greek from the Hebrew, they used the name Koryos. And it will be no surprise, therefore, to know that the name Kurios is also given to Jesus. And when in the New Testament the writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit quote from the Old Testament and they're quoting a passage in which Jehovah or Yahweh is used, they invariably and always render that with the word Kurios, which we have translated in English as Lord. And therefore, Jesus, having the name Kurios, which is the name Jehovah in the New Testament, Jesus is God. Kurios, Lord, is God. Jesus is called Kurios, or Lord. Therefore, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. He is perfectly divine. He is the Lord and God. He is Lord, creator of all things, almighty, ruling over all things. All things are in his hand. He is the judge of all men and angels. What God is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, also is. Second, the Son of God is Lord as the man Jesus Christ. He's Lord as the second person of the Trinity in the first place. In the second place, he's also Lord as the man Jesus Christ. And when the Son of God came into this world in the human nature, he was already Lord. He is always and unchangeably Lord. 
And you mustn't think, therefore, that when Jesus becomes a human being and lives those 33 years on planet Earth, he, for a time, ceases to be Lord. And then at the end, when he is exalted again, he becomes Lord again. No, he is Lord in eternity. He's Lord in the incarnation. He's Lord in his birth all the way through his life and in the exaltation and in the everlasting ages of eternity future. In his infancy, he is Lord. His Lordship is not obvious, perhaps, as he lies in a manger in Bethlehem, but he is Lord. That's what the angel said to the shepherds, if you recall, Luke 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. When Jesus commanded the sea and the wind to be still, he was Lord. When Jesus rebuked fevers and banished leprosy and restored the paralyzed and resurrected the dead, he was Lord. When Jesus suffered innumerable reproaches, when he was crucified, when he was killed, he was Lord. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 says that the rulers, quote, killed the Lord of glory. And when Jesus was on the cross, hanging there on the cross in agony, looking very unlike the Lord, Jesus was Lord. And the penitent thief recognizes this. Luke 23, 42. How does the penitent thief address Jesus who's dying on the cross beside him? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus is especially Lord at his exaltation. His exaltation does not make him Lord. Remember, he is unchangeably and eternally Lord. But his exaltation, we might say this way, makes his lordship official. Or makes his lordship obvious. Or makes his lordship public. Perhaps there were doubts about the lordship of Jesus when he died upon the cross and when he was buried in the tomb. But his exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension, his sitting at God's right hand, this proves his lordship. On the day of Pentecost, Peter declares to the Jews in Acts 2.36, God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. In Acts 5.31, Peter testifies to the unbelieving Jewish leaders, Him, speaking of Jesus, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a saviour, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus is Lord in heaven right now, and one day his lordship will be confessed and universally recognized, as Paul writes in, in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which, which is above 
every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess what? Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've established then, beloved, that Jesus is Lord. He is eternally and unchangeably and everlastingly Lord. But what does a Lord do? Or in what sense is he Lord? Well, first, the Son of God is Lord because he has the right to rule. That term Lord, that name Lord, bespeaks authority. And this authority extends to everything and to everyone, and therefore his lordship is universal. In Scripture, a lord is another word for master. In John 13, 13, Jesus says, just after he washes the disciples' feet, mind you, Jesus says, Ye call me master and lord. In verse 16, he says, The servant is not greater than his Lord. A Lord has authority then. A Lord says to his servant, Go, and he goes, and come, and he comes. A Lord is a king. He rules, he governs, he directs, he controls. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Lord over the entire universe. He directs history. He controls every creature. He sits upon a throne. He wields a scepter, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 1. He rules over men and women, both good and evil men and women. He rules over angels and devils alike. As he says to his disciples just before his ascension, all power, is given unto me. All authority, the word is, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28, verse 18. Second, the Son of God is Lord because he has the right to possess. Authority is the right to rule. He also has the right to possess. In Scripture, a Lord is another word not only for master, but also for owner or, or proprietor. As the Creator, the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus possesses everything that he has made. In that sense, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. But in Scripture, there is another special kind of possession. And the Bible calls that kind of possession possession by virtue of redemption. Redemption, the word redemption, the idea of redemption comes from the world of slavery. Now, slavery is not something known to us today, but slavery was something known in Paul's day, in the day of the Roman Empire. Slavery was common. A slave belonged to his master. But a slave could be redeemed. A slave could be purchased 
and thus transferred from one master to another master. And by virtue of redemption then, the one who pays the redemption price, the redeemer, owns the slave. The slave is or becomes his property. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's or which belong to God. And that, beloved, is the emphasis of the Catechism. The Catechism in Lord's Day 13 does not mention the, the rule of Jesus Christ over all things. It doesn't talk so much about the authority with which Jesus is invested as Lord, but it concentrates on the truth of redemption. Wherefore, or why, callest thou him our Lord? We we ask in question 34, and the answer is given, because he hath redeemed us. And the answer ends with, he hath made us his own property. And so, in a special way, Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's the Lord of all those whom he has redeemed. He's Lord, therefore, in a special sense, because it's not true of everyone that he is their Lord in this sense. Because Christ has not redeemed everyone. Christ has not redeemed the reprobate. Christ has not redeemed those who go lost forever. Christ has not redeemed those who perish in their sins. But he has redeemed us. And because he has redeemed us, we call him our Lord. And we know that he has redeemed us because we are delivered from our sins. Redemption is the deliverance from sin. And because we know that we are redeemed from sin, we know that we are his property. He is our Lord. And let's look a little bit more at this idea of redemption. And let's look at it in terms of three things. Redemption from something, redemption by or with something, and redemption unto something. First, we are redeemed from something. We are redeemed from all our sins. Think again of this idea of redemption, which has to do with slavery and being bought out of slavery. If we are redeemed from our sins, that means that sin was our master. Sin was our Lord. Sin ruled over us. If we are redeemed from our sins, not only are our sins forgiven, not only are we cleansed from our sins, but also, and especially this, Sin no longer has dominion over us. And the Catechism says we are thus redeemed soul and body. Our soul is redeemed, cleansed, and freed or liberated. Our body is redeemed, cleansed, and freed or liberated. Delivered, redeemed from sin. We read in Titus 2 verse 14, 
Titus 2 verse 14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us that, we might that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So we are redeemed from something, namely from all our sins. Second, we are redeemed with something or by means of something, namely with Christ's precious blood. Redemption requires the payment of a price. And that price is called a ransom. In the ancient Roman world, a slave could be redeemed from one master if a man paid money for that slave. If a man were to come to a master and say, I will give you a certain number of pieces of silver or gold for that slave. I want him to become my property. I want him to work for me. In fact, the slave might even be able to pay his own ransom price, pay for his own freedom. We have that in Acts twenty-two twenty-eight. Paul there encounters a captain in the Roman army who says, with a great sum of money obtained I this freedom. This captain then had before been a slave of some kind and he had purchased himself out of bondage by paying a great sum of money. Our ransom price was not money. It wasn't silver. It wasn't gold. That's First Peter 1, 18 and 19 where Peter writes, Ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We were, before our redemption and before our regeneration, we were in a slave relationship with sin. Sin was our master Satan was our Lord. And how did we get into that awful predicament, that miserable situation? Because of the justice of God. When Adam sinned, God in his justice sold Adam and the whole human race into the power of sin and Satan. That's what God's justice required. God's justice requires that man be miserable because of his sin. And there's no greater misery in this life than to be under the power and control of sin and Satan. And we're born into this world in that relationship. Sin, Satan, is our master, is our Lord controls us and we could not easily be redeemed from or freed from or liberated from that relationship we could not liberate ourselves from satan's clutches and we had no right to be set free a ransom had to be paid and we could not pay it and the only possible ransom that god would accept as a suitable and sufficient price 
is the blood of Jesus Christ. Someone had to die. And that someone must be perfectly righteous, a true man, and God, as we saw in Lord's Day 5 and 6. Someone must meet the requirements of God's justice, satisfy God by perfect lifelong obedience and sufficient suffering and death. And that was Jesus. He paid the ransom. The ransom was his blood. We are redeemed from all our sins. We are redeemed with or by means of Christ's precious blood. And third, having been redeemed, we are Christ's property. We are redeemed unto Christ. When a ransom is paid, there is ownership transfer. A slave is transferred from his old master to his new master. And the old master no longer has any legal right upon that slave who used to be his slave because of the payment of a price. He no longer has dominion over that slave. When Jesus paid our ransom, which he paid not to Satan, but to God, when Jesus paid our ransom, we were delivered from sin and the devil and brought under the ownership of Jesus Christ. He is now our Lord and Master. Thus says the Catechism, he hath made us his own property. Why? Because he loves us. He paid the price to redeem us from that miserable slavery in which we were held as Satan's slaves in order to liberate us and make us his property so that he would bestow his love upon us. Think of a boy with a cage of birds. That boy is a picture of Satan. He has a cage of birds. He tortures those birds. He mistreats those birds. He scares those birds because he hates those birds. And then Jesus comes along and he purchases that cage of birds. And what does he do then with that cage of birds? Does he take those birds and put them into another cage and treat them as miserably as the first boy had done? No, he sets them free so that they fly in the heavens. And he trains those birds to recognize him as their new master so that they come to him and they trust in him and they recognize that he loves them and they seek food from him and they sit upon his hand. Because the new master who purchased the cage of birds loves the birds while the old master he hated those birds and was cruel to them mistreated them abused them and tyrannized them a small picture of what jesus has done for us in other words satan sought to play with us to make us miserable and to destroy us but jesus purchased us in order to make us free and to bless us and to make us blessed. 
And freedom then, beloved, does not consist in doing whatever you want, but freedom consists in the freedom to serve him and to love him and to live with him. And so we are delivered from one master, a cruel despot, into the service of a new master, a loving, kind, generous master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is our privilege, beloved, to say, Jesus is my Lord. I did not make him my Lord. He is my Lord. He has made me his own precious possession by paying a ransom price for me, which is his own blood. That brings us then to the passage we read together, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, really 12 through 14, the apostle addresses the subject of spiritual gifts. He begins to address that topic at the beginning of chapter 12. Now he says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Now people think he's going to jump immediately to tongues and prophecy and all of these other spiritual gifts that were present in the church in Corinth in that day. But he begins with the most fundamental gift, which is the gift of confessing Jesus as Lord. Without that gift, the gift of confessing Jesus as Lord, all the other gifts are worthless and meaningless. Verse 3, no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. And here's the question then, beloved. Can you say Jesus is the Lord? And if you can say Jesus is the Lord, and even Jesus is my Lord, it's only by the power of the Holy Ghost. Spirit. Now be careful. Paul's not saying here that the ability to mouth the words Jesus is Lord is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anyone with a mouth and a tongue and the ability to speak can mouth the words Jesus is the Lord. That's not the issue. The issue is the spiritual ability to believe from the heart and confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. No one can do that, says the Apostle Paul, except by the Holy Spirit. And so we read in Romans 10, 9 and 10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto salvation, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And Paul goes on to explain this by means of contrast. 
there's an alternative. Either you confess that Jesus is the Lord, or you have a different Lord. In verse 2, the apostle describes the former misery of these Corinthians. Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. The Corinthians had been Gentiles. Gentiles are idolaters. The Corinthians had worshipped idols and had been involved in all of that gross immorality connected to idolatry. Idolatry for them was not a harmless pastime or a religious hobby. It was a kind of slavery, a kind of bondage. Because idols, and ultimately Satan, was their Lord. The apostle uses in verse 3, or rather verse 2, he uses the words carried away and led to describe their relationship to these idols. They had been carried away. They had been under the powerful influence of evil forces which controlled them, which impelled them, which moved them, and they were led. Elsewhere, Christians are described as led by the Spirit. We are, by virtue of regeneration, we have the Spirit, and we are now under the powerful, gracious influence of the Holy Spirit. But these Gentiles, these Corinthians, they had been carried away. And the idea of that word carried away is to be led away to trial or to prison or to execution. So these idols were leading them to execution. Miserable bondage, hopeless slavery. They had been in the thrall of evil powers that they could not understand, but which they had followed blindly before their conversion. Other passages give similar descriptions of the sinner without Jesus Christ and without his spirit. In Galatians 4, 8, the apostle writes, Howbeit, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. To do service is to act the part of of a slave toward a master. They served, they were in bondage to them which by nature are no gods. In Romans 6, 17, the apostle writes, Ye were the servants of sin. In Titus 3, verse 3, we read that we had before our conversion served diverse lusts and pleasures. It's not merely that the sinner enjoys his sin and gets pleasure from his sin, and sin is agreeable to him, that's bad enough, but the idea of this serving diverse lusts and pleasures is that they are in bondage to sin. They cannot escape from sin. Sin is the master, and he must be served, even if sin kills and sin, sin does kill. 
This bondage is a spiritual slavery which enslaves the mind and the soul and the heart and the will so that the sinner willingly serves sin from the heart without the slightest desire or inclination to cease. And if someone perhaps succeeds in reforming some aspect of his external behavior but is not converted and is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he simply exchanges one form of slavery for another form of slavery. Perhaps he breaks the habit of drunkenness with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous or some other organization. But if he's not a believer, he's still a slave to his lusts, his pride, his anger, his malice, his hatred, his idolatry, or some other sin. In addition, the Corinthians used to call Jesus anathema. Wherefore, verse 3, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. And that word accursed is anathema. So dreadful was their bondage to sin that they could not call Jesus Lord, but sin drove them to call Jesus accursed. No man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. That word accursed is anathema. Anathema is a fearful word. It's used in the Old Testament to describe something devoted to destruction. Remember in the book of Joshua, the city of Jericho, that city was anathema. Ordinarily, when the Israelites conquered a city in Canaan, God allowed them to keep the spoils, the silver and the gold and the clothing and all the rest and the cattle and all the rest. They could take that for themselves and for their own use. But Jericho, because it was the first city conquered in Canaan, was to be devoted to God. It was to be anathema. The whole thing had to be destroyed and everything in the city had to be devoted to God. And therefore, Joshua warns the people before they enter Jericho not to touch the accursed thing, the thing which is anathema, because it is devoted to destruction for the Lord's use. And when Achan in chapter 7 of Joshua stole some of the spoil of Jericho, he was guilty of stealing the accursed thing the thing that had become an anathema and therefore was God's, and then he became a curse. He became anathema and was stoned to death for his sin. And here in chapter 12, the unbeliever who is not under the spirit of Jesus Christ or the spirit of God, the unbeliever calls Jesus accursed or anathema. And this was especially the view and the blasphemous assertion of the unbelieving Jews. And there were, of course, Jews and Gentiles in Corinth, in the church in 
Corinth. The unbelieving Jews viewed Jesus as accursed, as anathema, because he had died the accursed death on the cross. And since the unbelieving Jews rejected the truth of the resurrection, they saw Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. They viewed him as a false prophet who was under God's curse on the cross and therefore forever under the divine curse. And so they said in their blasphemy against him, Jesus is anathema. He is forever devoted to destruction. Now, of course... The unbelieving Jews had rejected the truth of the cross. Because, beloved, it's true that Jesus was cursed. That part is true. Jesus was cursed. Not is cursed, but was cursed. But why was he cursed? He was cursed. He was made an anathema on the cross. Not because God rejected him and hated him and banished him forever, which was the view of the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, but rather because God had placed upon him the guilt of our sins and then punished him with the curse, which was the word of God's wrath against our sins. And that word of God's wrath against our sins, of which he had become guilty in God's sight, made Jesus miserable. Here's the explanation of the apostle in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. A believer then, because he confesses that Jesus is the Lord, the crucified and resurrected Lord, does not call Jesus accursed or anathema. In fact, we cannot call Jesus accursed or anathema because we have the Spirit of God. We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. We believe that he was resurrected. We do not call him accursed or anathema. And so here's how Paul then begins to explain and instruct the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. The Corinthians wanted to know about spiritual gifts, especially the gifts which they thought were the flashy and showy gifts, the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophesying. And Paul begins in verse 3 in his instruction on this topic by saying, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. Consider, beloved, the following scenario. A man comes into the assembly and that man begins to speak in a strange language that nobody can understand. He seems to be under the influence of a spiritual, supernatural power. He seems to be in some kind of ecstatic trance. He claims to be under the power of the Holy Spirit, but he says, Jesus is accursed. 
no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. Or nobody knows what he's saying. He could well be saying Jesus is accursed. Without an interpreter, no one knows what he said. And Paul says, no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. And so be careful, says the apostle. Be very, very careful. Do not receive as a spiritual gift something that causes you to say Jesus is accursed. Do not receive as a spiritual man someone who says to you Jesus is accursed. And do not even receive as a spiritual gift or as a spiritual man something or someone who says something that you do not understand. For all you know, he might be saying, Jesus is accursed. And if he says that, he is not speaking by the Spirit of the Lord. He's speaking under the power of another spirit. And this applies too to false doctrine. If a man says things about Jesus that are false because they contradict the scriptures, he's not speaking by the Spirit of God. He's not teaching, not truly teaching, that Jesus is the Lord. If a man gives his own opinion about Jesus, but his opinion is not in accordance with the Scriptures. He's not speaking by the Spirit of God. Perhaps this man is very emotional. Perhaps he speaks emphatically. Perhaps he is sincere. Perhaps he seems spiritual. But if he contradicts the Scriptures, he's not speaking by the Spirit of God. Perhaps he needs to be instructed or corrected, or even rebuked. But he's not speaking by the Spirit of God. On the other hand, if a man confesses that Jesus is the Lord with all the implications of that truth, he is speaking by the Spirit of God. And Paul explains in verse 3, no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. And that's important. Because the Holy Spirit is the agent by which we are delivered from bondage into the service of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, beloved, enters our hearts in regeneration. He breaks in us the power of sin, that power of sin that enslaves us. He infuses into our hearts, souls, minds, and wills new spiritual qualities and powers. And he does this because Jesus has died on the cross to redeem us. Jesus made us his own property by shedding his blood for us on the cross. And the Spirit knows whom Jesus has redeemed by his blood. And the Spirit comes into the hearts of all those whom Christ has redeemed. And the Spirit lays claim to them as Christ's property, because Christ's property is also the Spirit's property. And in time, 
He comes and takes possession of Christ's property. He comes into Christ's property. He begins to change us, to make us Christ's property indeed. And one of the first great changes is this. We no longer say, I serve sin. But now we say, and we confess it from the heart, Jesus is Lord. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is my Lord. Satan is no longer my Lord. Sin is no longer my master. Jesus is my only Lord. What does this require then? If Jesus is Lord, what does this require? Well, when sin was your Lord, sin required something of you. Sin demanded something of you. Sin required your service. And the Corinthians, they served idols. Before their conversion, they had been led or carried away of idols. And Jesus had mercy upon them. And Jesus had mercy upon us. He saw us in our miserable bondage to sin and Satan. And the Catechism says, He hath redeemed us both soul and body from all our sins. He hath delivered us from all the power of the devil and made us his own property. And therefore, we may not, we must not, we do not have to serve sin or Satan any longer. Jesus, the Redeemer, has set us free. And that does not mean that now we may live as we please. Because serving self is simply another form of miserable bondage. We don't exchange the bondage of sin and Satan for the bondage to self. Instead, we are under a new master, a new Lord. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord. We serve him. That's what Jesus says in Luke 6, 46. Here's how he explains the implications of your confession, if you say Jesus is Lord. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, he says, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? There's the only proper response to the truth that Jesus is Lord. We do the things that Jesus says. We obey him. We devote our lives to him. We give our allegiance to him and only to him. Our response is to say to Jesus, our Lord, our new Lord, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And when the Lord tells us what he will have us to do, as he does in the Holy Scriptures tell us what he would have us to do, our response is to do it. If our Lord bids us to serve him in one place, we go there. If our Lord bids us to stay in one place, we stay there, as long as it pleases him to keep us there. If our Lord requires us to suffer, we suffer patiently. If our Lord requires us to do something that will upset our friends and family, will endanger our livelihood or our freedom, or even cost us our life, 
we do it. That was the case, of course, in the first century in the Roman Empire. The Roman soldier would say to the Christian, Caesar is Lord. And he was expecting the response from that Christian, Caesar is Lord. But the Christian says, Jesus is Lord. And if that was the response a Christian gave to a Roman soldier, the soldier would kill him on the spot. We do this. We obey him. We serve him because he's Lord. And because he's Lord, his will is our will. We do this because we are his property. We do not have any rights of our own. We don't have the right to disobey our Lord. We do this because we belong to him, body and soul. And yet, beloved, it is no drudgery to serve the Lord Jesus. It is the greatest privilege in all the world to serve the Lord Jesus. He is the most glorious Lord and Master that any man could ever serve. He is the most gracious Lord, the most loving, kind, generous, compassionate Lord. He loves his servants. He's never cruel to them. He blesses his servants. He never curses them. And ultimately, we lose nothing by serving him. We might lose everything we have in this life, but we lose nothing ultimately by serving him because he gives us everything. He gives us everlasting life. If he is your Lord, beloved, serve him, love him, and be devoted to him. And if he is not your Lord, if you refuse to own him as Lord and to recognize his lordship over you, then cease your rebellion, repent of your sin, humble yourself under his lordship. He is Lord. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, he says, ye shall be free indeed to serve him, your Lord. Amen.